0: Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. We're
1: continuing in our series, The Best Sermon Ever, which is Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Chris, driving over the speed limit is breaking the law. All of us know that, but most of us do it anyway. Some of us do it more (laughs) than others. I know, I do. We Uh justify to ourselves by thinking that everyone does it or thinking that someone made a mistake on what the speed limit should be on certain stretches of road and clearly you could drive safely at a faster speed. We speed hoping we don't get caught and hoping that when we do get caught, we'll only get a warning. Well, and I confess I'm guilty of it, but there's two problems that we have. One, we think we know better than the people who did the road study and determined the speed limit. And two, when we get caught, all we really want is someone to take away the penalty and repercussions of what we've done so we can move
0: on with our lives just as before. That's true. And some of the people listening to the Sermon on the Mount, maybe even some of Jesus' disciples were the same way. There were people there who would have wanted Jesus to say that he would lessen the requirements of the law. They wanted their own rules, not someone else's who in this case is God. (laughs) Others wanted Jesus to be their political Messiah, to rescue them from their Roman oppressors. They didn't want a relationship with God. They wanted their immediate bad circumstances taken away. But they'll be disappointed. They will. They wanted a Messiah that they had formed in their
1: own minds, mostly one that would benefit their situation the best. People of every age have a tendency to do the exact same thing. We love to make God into what we want him to be. Most of us like to think of God as love, peace, and mercy, but would rather leave out his attributes of justice and especially wrath. Mm. Our sinful nature makes us want the Jesus of our own making, one that goes along with our rules, our ways of thinking, and because of our sinful nature, we want fantasy Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. And so did the people listening at that
0: time. You're right. Some who were listening probably were hoping that Jesus was going to lessen the requirements of the law, like I said. The Pharisees had defined the law so precisely in some ways in order to try to keep people from breaking it that the people were under a huge burden trying to live them out. They were. And we see
1: how stringent the Pharisees had made the law in the example of Jesus and the apostles picking a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees call them out in Mark chapter
0: 2. Jesus talks about the law in his Sermon on the Mount. He does. And we're going to start with that today. We left off last time at verse 17 of Matthew 5, which says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So immediately we see that
1: Jesus is starting to address what the people think by giving them the reason for his coming.
0: He's come on a mission, not to abolish the law, but fulfill it. It's pretty obvious right from the get-go that Jesus is not going to let these hearers keep their wrong thinking. He's not going to let them keep their pride or their wrong beliefs either. Rose, let's talk about the Law and the Prophets. I'll start out with one practical thing to know about them, and that is that they're named differently throughout the Bible. For instance, they're called the Law and the Prophets, as we see in Luke 16, 16, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms in Luke 24, 44, or just the law in John 10, 34. So, when you hear any of those things, you basically think all of the Old Testament. Or you should be thinking that, because yes. that's what it is.
1: The prophets were the chosen messengers of God to the nation of Israel, or the southern nation of Judah, too, when they split. They weren't fortune tellers. They spoke the words God told them to tell his people. Much of what they did was calling the people back to God and away from their sin. Often, they would remind the people of God's promises and blessings for obeying God and curses for disobeying God. And then
0: the prophets would call them to repent of their sin and to be obedient. The reason people think of the prophets as fortune tellers or future tellers is that they also told God's people of coming judgment for their sin. For example, exile in Babylon for 70 years. That was one of the things they told him. But the true prophets never spoke any of their own words. They only spoke what God told them. That's right. And in addition
1: to telling them about God's coming judgment, they also gave the Israelites God's promises of restoration. Some were for the people of Israel in their time, like Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11, which most people know. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. These verses were meant for the remnant of Israel. God was promising
0: them that he would bring them back to the promised land. And some of the prophecies were about farther in the future, like the messianic prophecies about Jesus, like the familiar Christmas passage from Isaiah 9, 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We all know that. Yes, love it too. And sometimes
1: the prophecies in the Old Testament had dual fulfillments, both a fulfillment in the Old Testament times, plus a future fulfillment by Jesus. Hosea eleven one is one of them. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God referred to Israel as his son, and he called them out of Egypt, of course, out of slavery, and. Jesus' parents fled to Egypt with him as a child to escape the order to kill all the male children who were under two years old. And then God called Jesus and his parents back to the Promised Land. But not every Old Testament prophecy has a second specific fulfillment by Jesus, except that, like everything in the Old Testament, it points to the need for a perfect Savior. For the prophecies that were fulfilled totally in Old Testament times or before Jesus was born. We shouldn't go looking to try to match them up
0: to something specific about Jesus. And there were some prophecies that are still future even now. An example would be Isaiah 65. Here's a few verses from that chapter. Uh, The first one is, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days they shall not build and another inhabit they shall not plant and another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands these verses of course are pointing to jesus's second coming when he establishes a new heaven on earth john the baptist was the last prophet until he started prophesying it had been the law and the prophets who testified of the messiah as jesus tells us in matthew 11:13 Okay, so what is the law? Well, let's talk about that. The Old Testament law had three aspects to it. The civil law, which dictated Israel's daily living. The ceremonial laws, which were laws about how to worship, where to worship, instructions about feasts and offerings and all that stuff. And they're found in Leviticus. And there's the moral law, which includes the Ten Commandments, the 613 judicial laws regulating how they lived, some of which were direct commands, which is also called apodictic law, like the Ten Commandments.
1: And then there's some that are more of a paradigm-setting examples of how to live. These are called casuistic. An example of this would be Deuteronomy 22.1. If you see your neighbor's ox or sheep or goat wandering away, don't ignore your responsibility. Take it back to its owner. This verse mentions your brother's ox or sheep string, but what if you see his donkey, or his dog, or his camel? Do you ignore them because the law doesn't mention those animals specifically? Of course not. If you see any of your neighbor's animals stray, or maybe his kids, <laughs> yeah. you
0: should take them back to them, no matter what kind of animal it is. That's absolutely right. So, if you've ever read that and you thought that God was showing special favor to ox and sheep, now you can relax.
1: <laughs> you can. The law was given so that we as sinful humans would come to understand that we can't possibly keep it. It's important that we get that. In Romans 3, Paul makes it clear that God gave the law to show us that we could
0: not keep it in order to point us to the need of a savior. This is important to grasp. The whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus like we said. Like we have said before, Jesus wasn't plan B. It wasn't that the Israelites failed to keep the law and because of that, God needed a new plan. Right.
1: Jesus and the cross was the plan from the very beginning, before the world was created. God gets all the glory. We can't do it ourselves. We can't be our own heroes. In fact, we're called jars of clay that are cracked and broken. (laughs) That's so true. We're weak every holy battle that israel fought was won by god not by them in fact he made the odds impossible to show that if he didn't do the fighting they could have never won
0: yeah that's so true and that's so contradictory to the familiar bible stories that kids get told sometimes that's true david wasn't the hero when he slung a stone and killed goliath god was the one who won that battle it would have been impossible for a young adult to kill a giant with a sling and a stone without God doing it. Really. yeah. Same with Gideon, same with Deborah, Samson, etc. God's the warrior who wins the battle for us. That's why God told the Israelites, do not be afraid of the nations there, for the Lord your God will fight for you in Deuteronomy 3.22. And in our salvation story, Jesus
1: is the victorious hero, not us. In fact, Jesus is the victorious hero in every story of our lives, not us. Our battle with sin is impossible without Jesus' victory and the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Amen.
0: So, let's move on to verse 18 of Matthew 5, where Jesus tells his disciples, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished.
1: Some Jews in Jesus' time were thinking and hoping that Jesus was going to do away with the law. Like we mentioned, they were under tremendous burden trying to follow God's law plus all the rules that the Jewish leaders had added to it as a hedge
0: to keep people from ever
1: coming close to breaking one of God's laws.
0: Right, their rulers laid down strict outward laws, ways they believed would help people, including themselves, to keep from breaking the law of God in order to help keep them holy like the one we referred to earlier with Jesus and his apostles and the grains of wheat. Although we're used to thinking of the Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders in a bad way, some of them really were truly trying to help people have holiness. They were, but some of the laws
1: hurt people whether the Pharisees intentionally meant them to or not. For example, people who lived in the country and weren't part of the religious elite had to struggle under a rule the religious leaders put in place charging an extra expense on buying goods from the country people. They put the rule in place because it was found out that the country people hadn't always been paying the full tithe according to the law. So from that point on if someone bought goods from the country people they had to assume payment of those tithes themselves before they could use the goods
0: or resell them. Yeah, and this caused the Pharisees and their fraternity of men and the women in their families to end up having a sort of trade association amongst themselves because if they bought goods from another Pharisee, those goods were free from that extra tithe. So they were worried about the holiness of the people and they made ways to try to keep them following God's law, but they had no mercy when their external laws put others in a harsh position. And the Pharisees and the fraternity people benefited from that law themselves yeah that stinks first
1: tariffs (laughs) yeah the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer
0: not all the pharisees were just trying to be holy by having extra rules no they weren't it's no wonder that jesus calls them hypocrites the dead sea scrolls refer to the pharisees as seekers after smooth things because they compromise the law to fit their own lives
1: doesn't that sound familiar
0: yeah there's nothing new under the sun there
1: The Pharisees focused on the external keeping of the law. What Jesus does through the rest of his ministry may look like he's relaxing the law because he's not following those external rules added by the Pharisees. But he's not relaxing God's law at all. Remember, Jesus said not an iota, not a dot will
0: pass from the law until all is accomplished. That stroke of a pen iota or dot being talked about is a tiny extension called a horn and it was put on certain letters in the hebrew alphabet it's a it's tiny but that little horn distinguishes some letters of the alphabet from others jesus didn't come to abolish or get rid of the law not even one little teeny tiny part of it until everything is accomplished and that means when all of god's plans are fulfilled when his kingdom comes in the new heavens and the new earth There's some differences of
1: opinion of which laws apply to us today. All 613 of the Old Testament laws, just the Ten Commandments, what about ceremonial laws, or none of them because we're under grace. But all mankind is still under moral law.
0: The moral standard doesn't change under grace. The moral laws are 12. The Ten Commandments in all of their fullness, which you can find if you look them up in the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Catechism, And the other two, which are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which basically sum up the first ten. For a great short article on that, you can see Ligonier Ministries, Should a Christian Obey the Old Testament Law. It's a great article. Love Ligonier Ministries. Grace
1: doesn't give us license to sin. That would be cheap grace. What grace does is it empowers us to live holy and keep the moral standard through the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 1-2, that even though we're saved from our sin, we're not set free to sin just because we're forgiven. We call that antinomianism, and like I
0: said, cheap grace. Yeah. So, moving on to Matthew five nineteen, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a warning against the
1: teaching of the Pharisees, and by default, false teaching in the church and its preachers today, and maybe Bible study teachers. There are numerous warnings
0: in the New Testament about false teachers. And in light of Jesus just having said that the whole moral law will still be applicable, This warning has special significance with regards to relaxing the teachings of the Bible to suit men's sinful desires, just as Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, which says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And according to James 3.1, teachers of the Bible will be judged more harshly or more strictly than others. Why did not you tell me that before I got into this? Sorry. I thought you knew.
1: <laughs> that verse is hard to understand. What does it mean to be called the least or the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not all commentators are in
0: agreement about this. They're not. The differences come first from what in the kingdom means. Does it mean in the present kingdom ushered in by Christ's first coming? Or does it mean the future kingdom in the new heavens and earth? Then you have to figure out what do least and greatest mean. Well, let's get into it. Because Jesus says
1: least in the kingdom, some believe least doesn't mean the unsaved because they're in and obviously the unsaved aren't. If so, then least in the kingdom has to mean a degraded position in the present kingdom. This is sometimes explained as God giving those that relax the law and teach others to do so less responsibility in ministry here on earth or that it means less earthly
0: blessing. Then, there are some who believe that least in the kingdom and greatest in the kingdom has to do with different levels of greatness in the future kingdom of God, which other scripture does seem to support somewhat with talk about reward in heaven. Right. They
1: say it means that either God giving the greatest more responsibility in new heavens and earth than he gives to the least, or that the greatest will receive more crowns, more wealth, more tangible things like that. And the people that say that are usually the ones
0: looking for actual golden streets and mansions. It sounds like it.
1: Yeah. Some see heavenly reward as people in whose salvation story they had some part. The idea is that the greatest will have a larger group welcoming them when they reach heaven or
0: more people to welcome into it themselves after they get there. It's important to say here that all commentators who believe the meaning of least and greatest in the kingdom has to do with some sort of heavenly reward, regardless of what that is, are convinced that without our sin nature, different statuses and different amounts of reward in heaven will not cause envy, greed, or any discord in the kingdom.
1: And even if you're at the very bottom, you're still in heaven. Right, exactly. (laughs) And that's an important point because it's pretty relevant to what the kingdom will be like. But Chris, there's a totally different option to what heavenly reward and least in the kingdom means. Some equate those heavenly rewards with the blessing of being with Christ for all eternity, or in other words,
0: saved. Right. And those commentators believe that Jesus is talking about the kingdom he's brought to earth. Those commentators believe that the least are those in the present kingdom who are unbelievers in the visible church. They're the ones teaching the false doctrine and relaxing the moral code to suit themselves and teaching others to do the same. They call themselves believers, disciples, or Christians, and many are under the assumption that they are. This understanding of it makes sense in light of what Jesus talked about right before this passage. So these are people who think
1: they're sheep, but they're actually goats. Absolutely. Okay. Like we said, in Jesus' time, that would have included the hypocritical Pharisees and Jewish religious leaders,
0: and today, it would be false teachers who are in church. It's easy to see false teachers when they're gathered together in a local congregation where the moral law is practically non-existent, but sometimes they're in congregations where the teaching and doctrine from the leadership are correct, and they're sitting right beside those who do believe and teach correctly.
1: They're the wolves. This idea about the least being unbelievers seems likely due to the fact that anyone who would purposely relax God's law and teach others to do so wouldn't be a true believer. Jesus called the Pharisees who changed the law to suit their own purposes hypocrites, graves full of
0: dead bones, vipers, and the like. Given that many of the parables in the rest of the book of Matthew have to do with two groups of people that include both those who are saved and those who are not existing together until the end, at which time they are separated, also lends itself to the least, meaning the unsaved. This day is going to come as a shocking blow to some. It is going to for sure. Moving on to verse 20, let's talk about what Jesus meant when he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the first thing I would say is this had to be a shocker to everyone (laughs) listening. It did. We tend to think of the Pharisees in a bad way because we're familiar with calling them hypocrites in the New Testament. However, in Jesus' time, the people thought of the Pharisees as the most ethical and godly people of the times. For Jesus to tell the people that they needed to be more righteous than the Pharisees would definitely have been shocking. Kind of like how the Catholics feel about the Pope. Yes, exactly.
1: So what's Jesus saying here? Well, let's start by reminding everyone that the law is insufficient to be saved by. That's what Jesus is saying. He's telling them, the best rule-following humans you know aren't behaved well enough to be
0: in my kingdom. He was for all intents and purposes telling them that they needed the impossible. Exactly. But this is Jesus' message all along. The answer
1: to how to have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is the same answer he told the apostles when they asked him about the young rich ruler or to Nicodemus when Jesus said, you must be born again. The answer is with man,
0: this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God regenerates the hearts of stone, the internal change that many of the Pharisees and teachers of the law were lacking. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts And when we hear the gospel message, we believe in faith that Jesus' righteous life and death on the cross paid our penalty for our sin. When that happens, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. This is how God sees us from that point on, as righteous. It's as if we're standing there one instant in our sinful, dirty clothes, but once we believe, we're now clothed in the pure, spotless robe of righteousness that was earned for us by Christ. The word for this is
1: imputation. To impute something is to ascribe or attribute something to someone. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness
0: of God. So we get Christ's righteousness imputed to us and he got our sin imputed to him. It was not a fair trade. No. Oh, not but for then him. It, yeah, yeah, no. But then again, nothing about grace is fair. If it was, it wouldn't be grace. Great point. Jesus did what he told them he came
1: to do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. However, these laws are also fulfilled in us as Christians also. How? By Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Like we said in episode one of this series, once we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us, and we now have the power to live according to the law. More and more... The Holy Spirit will work on us to make us more like Jesus. This isn't something we do on our own,
0: but we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in doing it. Amen to that. And that's all we have time for today. So if you like what you heard, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening site. And leave us a review, too, if you have a minute. If you
1: have any questions or comments or feedback about today's episode, drop us a line on our website, Proverbs910ministries.com. Have a blessed day, everyone.